uh, really lagged a lot, right? So I wanted to uh, bring you on with a stable system, right? So this is uh, browser-based, so there's not going to be any interruptions in sound or right uh, screen rates dropping, things like that. So we can really uh, dig into into your stuff. I got lots of questions for you, brother. All right, cool. I've got there we go. You're coming prepared. Right there. Back over here. I've got, uh, you know, the, the talk that you did <clears throat> and you gave some uh, GPS locations. So yeah. uh, I pulled them all up, right? Mm -hmm. So I got them uh, ready on Google Earth. So Great. as our talk progresses, uh, what I'll do is I'll share my screen and, uh, and then I'll bring that up. And then uh, maybe you can uh, you can touch on that. Sure. Okay, right on. So I've started the live stream now. So uh, let me just go quickly have a look on um, on YouTube. Make sure everything's all on the up and up. Oh, Bruce says hello. I was talking to Bruce earlier today. So he uh, sends a hello from uh, Philippines. All right, Bruce. Yeah, good afternoon. We'll be watching. So here. Your audio sounds good. Right on, everyone. Thanks for uh, joining us here today. Please, uh, I got something going here. I'm here. Okay, right on. Uh, just uh, give me one sec here. Share this out a little bit, and here's my co-host right here, Clarence. Do you know Clarence, Brad? Uh, I'm Clarence not sure. from I do. Uh, Closer Encounters. Uh, he's been uh, streaming on Facebook for uh, one of the longest times that I know of. He, uh, I've been at it for a few years, and he was already at it for a couple of years prior to me. Uh, he's got a great mind, um, asks uh, a lot of great questions. So well, let's bring him on. Yeah, so hopefully he can uh, join us here and uh, going live. There he is. Going live with... Man, I might I might have uh, read some of your books from uh, Lonely Planet. I used to uh, buy a lot of their books and use them to go traveling. Uh, you did some books with that uh, Lonely Planet, right? No, not with Lonely Planet. I no? published a few Lonely Planet authors. 
with uh, an oh, I see. anthology that I did called In Search of Adventure. <clears throat> yeah. Hey there, Clarence. Hello, how are you? Doing good. Good, good. <laughs> Where are you hearkening from? Minnesota. All right. <laughs> the tundra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got snow last night, of all things. Can you believe that? Again. Like, gee whiz. I thought I would quit by now. We're getting snow where I'm at right now as we speak, too. I'm up really? in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains. Oh, Nevada. Yeah. 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 It's third no day water. of a killer snowstorm. And I have a ski pass to go out there and ski it. But uh, all the mountains closed down. So, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, I used to run hey. truck across that area during the wintertime, man. I tell you. You get up around there and in Donner's Pass and stuff. That's crazy out there, no doubt. <laughs> Man. Yeah, let me show you out the window here, Clarence. Let oh, my goodness. It. Yeah, it looks like here. <laughs> Coming down. Wow. You can blame Omar. Damn Canadians, they keep uh, bringing that stuff down here. <laughs> Damn Canadians. <laughs> they won't keep it up there. They keep sending it down here. <laughs> yeah. uh, this last weekend, we were uh, pretty cold, man. We were minus 10, uh, minus 12, waking up to, uh, you know, about minus 12. And for the last uh, couple of weeks, it's been uh, it's been pretty warm. So all of a sudden, we just got hit with this. With this cold snap and waking up in the morning now with like minus 10 minus 11. Right. So, uh, yeah, go ahead, blame us. Uh, I've no, <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, we had, I think it got up to 51 degrees and everything was melting off the roof. And I thought, yep, okay, it's, it's good. Everything's going now. And last couple of days been getting colder and colder and then we got snow. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Let's uh, get the show started here. Brad's uh, given us his time, and uh, thank you very much, Brad. And uh, everyone who is uh, watching this right now and uh, those who are going to watch in the future, uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, we're going to have ourselves a fantastic uh, discussion here this evening with the uh, great uh, Brad Olson. Uh, he's a world traveler, uh, producer, public speaker, philosopher, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, he's uh, pretty much, uh, he's been doing it, uh, I guess, since, uh, what, 1995 you began writing, Brad? Yeah. Yeah, about 95. So it's been, uh, you know, some of us were just teenagers when, uh, you know, he was already, <laughs> uh, you know, well into his uh, started writing. Uh, he's got, uh, you know, uh, nine books that uh, he's published and uh, the uh, uh, web address will be in the uh, description sec section of this uh, video so you guys want to go and uh, buy his books uh, that would be uh, you know great for you uh, because uh, you'll get to learn something uh, something really really fantastic so Brad was uh, recently about a year ago in uh, Antarctica and uh, I can honestly say I've never talked to anybody who's physically been to uh, Antarctica now, we know that uh, Antarctica is like uh, really mysterious. It's got lots of secrets, lots of anomalies. Uh, it's the unknown. And, uh, you know, Brad's uh, the only guy that I know that's uh, actually been down there. So I've got, uh, you know, tons of questions for Brad. 
And uh, I'm sure uh, Clarence is going to have tons of questions for Brad as well, along yeah. with you guys out there watching. <clears throat> because Antarctica is a very interesting subject because uh, we know nothing about it. You know, absolutely nothing, zero. Like, well, I wouldn't say zero, but we know probably like 0 0.1, right? And uh, that's probably with the uh, efforts of uh, Brad included in there. Now, Brad's done, uh, you know, a lot of talks on these subjects, and uh, I'm grateful that uh, he's uh, decided to come here on Watcher's Talk and, uh, you know, educate us a little bit on uh, Antarctica. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Brad, for uh, giving me your time once again. Um, uh, really happy to have you here, and uh, let's, uh, you know, let's uh, learn Antarctica and talk Antarctica. All right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start off with, uh, you know, those who really don't know who you are or know you a little bit. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? And then uh, after that, uh, we'll jump into uh, Antarctica, how you get there, uh, you know, the hassles of getting there, where you stay and uh, type of things you can do down there. And then we'll just follow in through with there. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm a lifetime traveler. I think that's really the big picture here. I love to go to new places. And after visiting Antarctica, I've joined the Seven Continent Club and been to 50 some countries around the world in my life and continue to love to travel. So this whole ban on travel is a bit uh, unnerving right now to have to shelter in place in the Bay Area and this whole coronavirus is putting a cramp on many things. Like my whole spring has just been called off <laughs> from speaking at a couple of conferences that have been canceled to the big event that I produced called the How Weird Street Fair in San Francisco has been postponed. My ski season now called off. So I guess I'm just going to finish my 10th book while I have this time on my hands. And it is in the series of the uh, esoteric series. The next one's called Beyond Esoteric, Escaping Prison Planet, which is very appropriate for today. But to give you the backstory, how I got to here now, I uh, grew up in the Midwest, uh, graduated from Illinois State University. And while everybody was ready to go get a job right out of college, I decided, hey, I wanna go travel. I'm gonna go backpack around Europe for three months. So all my trips have been self-financed. I was painting houses in the Midwest in college, paid for my three-month trip, thought I was so cool being an American out. One of the few, really. There's like way more Australians and Kiwis, uh, and they're far less of a population than we are. And so I'd come up to them and say, hey, uh, this is great. I've been on the road for three months. And they say, three months, mate? We've been on the road for three years. I said, well, how do you do that? I said, well, you work your way around the planet and just go in one direction. You get back to where you started. So that's what I decided to do. And then, well, it took me a couple of years. I was, uh, I live here in Lake Tahoe where I'm at. See the snow falling behind me. Third day of powder skiing, but the mountains are closed. Oh, it's so disappointing. But anyways, I went to... Uh, Teach English in Japan. And that's where I started working on my very first book called World Stompers, A Global Travel Manifesto. Still in print, still a great book, still relevant today. People read it and they 
write me and say, yeah, man, inspired me to go take my own trip around the world. Loved it. And then from there, I got into uh, travel writing in different genres. For example, I did a, a series called Extreme Adventures, uh, Hawaii, where I lived for seven months, and Northern California, where I still live. And these were just all the cool activities and sports that I learned about and like to do. Then I did a anthology of travel stories called In Search of Adventure. That came out in 1999. And then I was starting my own publishing business called CCC Publishing within this really cool warehouse that I was a part of for a little over six years called the CCC, the Consortium of Collective Consciousness. And towards the end of our stay there, we had thrown these parties inside that were really fun, but they got real popular and real big. So we spilled out into the street and that's how the How Weird Street Fair started 21 years ago wow. uh, in downtown San Francisco. And just uh, today we had to say uh, our event is postponed. We we're all permitted, ready to go on May 3rd, but uh, the CDC has said three months hold on that. So that the other profession I have is uh, event producer once a year, but all year round I work on uh, books and I also publish other authors. So I picked up this author named Lon Milo Duquette about 10 years ago, and he did a book called The Key to Solomon's Key, which is a really great book and very intriguing. And it opened the door for me into these esoteric subjects, which I find very fascinating and really like to study myself in depth and always have. And then around the time of uh, Y2K, especially in 2001, we had the uh, dot-com bubble burst. Yep. And that was when we lost the CCC warehouse and when the internet started to explode and basically travel publishing started to become an endangered species because you could get anything you want online for free. So why do you have to buy a book? Why do you have to pay any money when you can just get online and find it for free? Yeah. So I was kind of having an existential crisis. Like, what am I going to do now? Uh, I still love to travel and I still do, but it wasn't really penciling out economically <laughs> in the accounting ledgers. So I made a decision. I said, this book with Lon Milo Duquette did pretty well. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start writing books and studying and researching and releasing these titles in my own esoteric series. While at the same time, I picked up uh, author Leo Lyon Zagami through CCC Publishing, and we've published five of his books in the Confessions of an Illuminati series, The Last Pope, and Invisible Master, all titles very relevant to what is going on today, too, and uh, the changes that are happening at the Vatican and in Italy right now. Uh, many things were prophesized in his last Pope book. So it's quite fascinating to be able to work with people in this field. And then since I came out with my books in the Esoteric series, the first one is called Modern Esoteric Beyond Our Senses, and then Future Esoteric, the unseen realms. And in, in future esoteric, I get into a lot of the UFO stuff. So then that got me invited to these conferences. I contact the desert and uh, just did UFO Megacon a month ago. 
and a whole bunch of other ones, which is great because I love public speaking and meeting people and getting out there. And it's another avenue for people to uh, find out about my books and what I'm doing. And now I'm coming out with my 10th book because I got a lot of time on my hands to uh, get some writing done. Cool. <laughs> right on. Uh, that's uh, quite the quite the span of career that uh, that you've had. Uh, lots of experience. Uh, so now let's talk about uh, Antarctica. So, uh, you know, you opened up to the uh, esoterics and uh, you've uh, published a few books. And uh, I watched uh, a few of your uh, presentations on YouTube. And uh, what I'd like to know is, um, you know, what made you decide to uh, take the journey uh, to Antarctica? Because I know you went to South America and you were down there for like three, four months. And then, uh, and then after that, or during that time, you went to Antarctica. Um, you know, like, uh, what made you do that? Just, uh, just travel, or you're interested in the mysteries, or you were were you down there researching for your next book? All the above, and some more. <laughs> well, so the backstory is this: about two years ago, I had a really nice apartment in San Francisco, and it was rent controlled, and. Um, was living with my long-term girlfriend. And then two years ago, we get served eviction papers, a new owner, and they were doing an owner move in and they wanted to take our unit. And it was kind of in the making already, but it broke us up. And she still lives right around that neighborhood and stayed there and was working. And I thought this is another opportunity anytime I'm in between places to go on a trip. And two years ago, the only two continents I hadn't been to yet were South America and Antarctica. So I like got the time, I got the money and I got the desire. I guess it's uh, time to go. And so then uh, a month after I had to move out, um, I was speaking at Contact in the Desert. And at the end of a presentation I was doing about the giants, uh, included portions of Antarctica. And I made the public announcement. I got uh, my plane ticket flying down there. And so uh, at that particular event, I met uh, Emily Infinity and she and I uh, became partners and she bought a plane ticket and we went down there together. So it was good to have a travel companion for this because uh, it was a nonstop journey. And the first part of it was buying a vehicle in Santiago, Chile, which I did 5,500 in cash, 55 Benjamins right oh. there. And it was fully outfitted already. It had a bed in the back. It had a slide out stove. It had a refrigerator, a second battery. It had a rack on top with a propane tank that came down to the stove. I mean, everything was ready to go. It couldn't have worked out better. And it turned out to be a great vehicle. And we beat on that thing, especially down in Southern Patagonia on the dirt roads and the high winds messed it up. And I was able to sell it uh, three and a half months later after Antarctica in El Chatlan, Argentina. So if you know the Patagonia logo, there's one big mountain in the middle. That's Mount Fitzroy. That is an actual skyline on the Patagonian logo. And wow. there's a town there where I sold the Ford Expedition for six thousand, so I, <laughs> money back, but I had to. We were we were then uh, backpackers and had to get on the bus and 
so I lost my transportation back to Buenos Aires to fly out of there. And but I mean, I, we just went over to Uruguay and uh, kicked it on a beach for five days in Colonia del Sacramento, a really cool town right across the bay from uh, Buenos Aires. So there was a whole bunch of adventures in South America, going to the megaliths and going uh, to some of these old Nazi escape places like Bariloche and others, uh, and also experiencing uh, this this town south southern Patagonia called uh, Porto San Julian, where Magellan wintered over 500 years ago. This is the 500-year anniversary of Magellan discovering the very famous Straits of Magellan that go through uh, the southern part of South America that separate southern Patagonia for Tel del Fuego. And they had an experience with some giants in that location where the Italians and the Spanish only came up to the guy's waist. And then there were many other accounts of subsequent voyagers who were going around South America that would experience the Fuguayan Indians who were exceptionally tall and very hardy, living in some of the harshest climate of the world and just basically wearing a shath of uh, skin, animal skin over them and being practically naked in one of these harshest climates of the world. And, and, and that is the southernmost uh, continental land mass of the world too, down in Terra del Fuego hmm. or around the Straits of Magellan. Any further south, that's the Drake Passage, and then that's how you get to uh, the Palmer Peninsula, and that is the closest land connection between southern tip of South America and the Palmer Peninsula. So Emily and I drove down to Ushuaia, Argentina, right before New Year's Eve 2018, and were steered in the direction of the yacht captains at another harbor there, not where all the big uh, ocean liners were coming in but to the uh, the boat harbor. And we met a captain that could take us down there and did. So it was a 26 day trip on a sailboat with uh, 14 of us, 11 Polish and three Americans. And it took us four days to go over the Drake Passage, very, very rough seas. Uh, Emily and myself and most everybody on the trip got really sick from seasickness. I think I lost about 20 pounds on that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Crash diet for anybody that needs to lose weight in a hurry. You won't eat for a week and you'll puke everything out that you had inside you. Pounds just shrop away. <laughs> yeah, those are uh, some pretty rough waves down there, right? Because you got the Drake Passage oh. and that's where the, uh, the three oceans are meeting and uh, you got the warm water and the Arctic cold water all coming together. So I bet it's... Uh, because I'm pretty serious waves, so I could imagine. I don't think I'd do well, Brad. No, Emily thought we were going to die uh, because our captains were inexperienced. It was their first time going. And they <laughs> thought we could make up some time leaving Ushuaia. We got our keel was stuck in the mud the day we were supposed to leave. We didn't get out there till around midnight. So we lost the first day, essentially. And the, they wanted to make up some time. And there was a storm that was just moving down. And they thought we'd catch the tail end of it. And we caught the tail end of it. And we caught the storm itself. And there are there 30-foot swells. I'm kidding you not. And we had to take turns, if we were well enough, to go up on deck and uh, 
just be another pair of eyeballs and help look out for icebergs, which was the first thing we saw before we saw land. We saw massive icebergs. And I'm not kidding you. It would be down in the trough and you're just looking up and it's just water everywhere. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, we're so screwed. We're just going to get swamped and soaking wet. But the boat would just boing right back up. And then you'd be like, oh, wow, I can see all around the horizon. And then down she goes again and you're in the trough. So it was like that oh, <laughs> repetitively man. for hours and hours and days and days. And then they made it to King George Island, which is in the South Shetland Island chain. And there was a, uh, a Polish base there called Arktowski because we were a Polish vessel with 11 Poles and a Polish captain. They welcomed us in. It was a prearranged meeting. So we arrived with fresh fruits and vegetables for them. And they let us come in and take a shower, which was much needed at that point. Uh, and then have a few meals with them and then a night of singing and revelry and drinking. It was quite a, a fine reception to make upon arriving. Uh, and then the, the time we left, we got to sail around this uh, glacier fed bay and there were calving glaciers breaking off the shelf. There were whales swimming around. It was just magical. Wow. So that was the start of the Antarctica experience. We had to cross one more strait, the Bransfield Strait, to get to the actual Palmer Peninsula. But that was pretty easy sailing. And for the full 15 days that we were in Antarctica, it was pretty nice sailing. The seas were not very choppy. And even the weather got pretty warm. We had two days where it was T-shirt weather for only a couple hours in the middle of the day up on the deck. But uh, we got a suntan and... Uh, actually stripped down at one point and did the polar plunge and jumped really? in the water amid the icebergs oh, right away and shook off the water. And Hey, we, uh, still here to tell the story. <laughs> wow. Man, I'd be puking in that boat if there were swells like 30 feet high. For sure. I'd be in a bathroom puking. <laughs> yeah. It's to be reckoned with. That's Amazing. How long, uh, how long of a trip was it uh, to uh, get to Antarctica from the time you left uh, Ushuaia? 92 hours exactly. So wow. just under four days. Wow. And how then it took us six days to get back because then we had to tack against the wind. That took longer. But right about when we were about to go into the Beagle Channel, some of the guys who were also sailors in Poland really wanted to see Cape Horn which is the very southernmost island tip of South America. And it is a very famous mariner landmark, much like every mountain climber would want to see Mount Everest in their life. Every sailor wants to go see Cape Horn. So we tacked back and we made it right to the uh, parallel where, as you mentioned, the Atlantic meets the Pacific meets the Southern Ocean. Mm -hmm. And then we popped some champagne and, had a celebration and got to see Cape Horn off in the distance. And then it was uh, a day and a half to get back to Ushuaia. And then we all went out to dinner one night uh, after we got back and we're still all friends on Facebook and keep in touch. Cool. And then uh, Emily and I had to go finish our trip and then fly out uh, by the end of the month. And uh, just a year ago this time, I had only been back two weeks and I was on coast to coast and 
fade to black and yep. all the shows wanted me to come on and tell them about Antarctica beyond belief flew me out to uh, Boulder to be on with George Nori and ground zero with Clyde Lewis. Now, so I'm pretty much telling them the story I'm telling you guys uh, what it was all about, because as you mentioned, Omar, I, I think I'm the only researcher in this field that's actually made the effort and gone down there to check it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, what a trip it was. <laughs> I remember hearing your show you did with George Norrie about the Giants and stuff. That that was a while back now. But, yeah, that was pretty cool. Oh, cool. I'm glad you remember that. Yeah. I've even seen you on Ancient Aliens a few times. <laughs> yeah, I had a couple cameos on that show, too. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So these people that don't know who you are or whatever, he's pretty well known, folks. Believe me, he's, he's been around. <laughs> no doubt about it. Awesome. Any questions for uh, Brad there, uh, Clarence? Well, I was just wondering, I, you know, we were talking about Antarctica and the Giants and stuff like that. Um, what was, did they ever come up with an actual date uh, or timeline? Uh, you know, when these, or had they all, all, always been there? I mean, or did they move there or? You know, did they ever figure that part out or what the deal was with them? You mean with the giants that have supposedly been recovered in Antarctica? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, there's there's only a couple sources of this information. <clears throat> the main one is Corey Good, who says he's been to this site. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, Emory Smith, too. Yeah. Uh, and they, there are some other military people that I know have spoken about some large craft under the ice. And that's what I was really set out to try to find and see if anybody knew anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the military, apparently they call them Nina Pinta and Santa Maria, like the Columbus three ships. Yeah. And, um, and, and so the, the craft itself, one of them, um, at least one of them had giants. And so Corey Good says that he saw an excavation site where they were pulling out these pre-Adamite, that's what he calls them, the pre-Adamite giants, which were very, very tall, 10, 12, uh, 15 feet tall. And they were wearing uh, Egyptian-like clothes, he says. Uh, I could not find anybody that knew anything about excavations or antediluvian civilizations. Some of the drawings that uh, Corey Good did for Gaia TV depict uh, megalithic buildings and, right. um, and a dig site where they were pulling out uh, megafauna, such as woolly mammoth and giant sloths and so forth. Right. And it, at some of those digs, they also found these pre-Adamite giants. Uh, but this is just coming from a couple different sources of information so what i like to do when i research is look for multiple data points mm -hmm. and when you can get uh confirming information from multiple data points then you're probably onto something right and so the best case that i could make for a craft under the ice is a base that has been known for a long time it's inland in the new schwabenland area that area of land claimed by Germany before World War II that we've heard a lot about. 
that also had their uh, New Berlin base or base 211, as it was also called. Right. I know exactly where that is. Uh, if I were to ever go back, I'd like to go back with a film crew to this location and with some Geiger counters, too, to see if it's radioactive uh, from being nuked during Operation Argus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, the Antarctica Treaty was signed after the U.S. did these still top secret nuclear tests, high atmospheric nuclear bomb tests, which uh, are now being acknowledged for the reason that there were holes in the ozone. Remember that? Oh, yes. Back yep. in the 60s and 70s? Yep. Yeah. They said, oh, it's because everybody's using hairspray. No, it wasn't that at all. No. It was these high altitude <laughs> nuclear bomb tests in the still classified top secret project Argus. Right. And so because it's still top secret, they think they dropped a few over on uh, the new Berlin base to finally get rid of those Antarctica Nazis. Mm -hmm. Well, they knew about this one site called Conan, K-O-N-H-E-N. You can still see it on uh, the maps of all the bases in Antarctica. It was, I have some maps from the Cold War era when it was West Germany. They had a base inland at Conan. Mm-hmm. And then, so when I was doing research before my trip, I was going to every single GPS coordinates and checking it out on Google Earth. And lo and behold, this site has something there. Uh, there right now, if you were to go to it, you'd see all these uh, prongs sticking up. Okay. And I understand now through... Uh, remote viewers that they put up a tarp to cover over this craft. Well, if you go to the Wayback Machine with these GPS coordinates for the Conan base, uh, they were doing some excavation there, and the Google Earth shot shows it. Uh, it's some kind of giant machine, almost like a, an old motor with uh, the fins of the motor sticking out. And you could see an airstrip there, and you can see where the uh, snowmobiles were coming around and some kind of forward base where they were doing some work or excavation. Hmm. And so that that was a confirming data point. Then the old maps with this Conan base on it were other data points. And then the Farsight Institute with Courtney Brown and some of the remote viewers, they went down into it, and they remote viewed it and said that this was nothing naturally forming, that this was some kind of massive craft under the ice, whether it was human-made or alien-made, they didn't know. But they just said there was something here that was artificially fastened. So for me, that's the best evidence that there is some kind of craft under the ice. And that would be in one of the locations I would like to go back to to check out with a film crew. So any producers out there want to... (laughs) <laughs> Ring it in and come up with a budget. Let's do this thing. I know, even know the uh, expedition companies that could uh, take us now, there. Do you, uh, do you believe in the Admiral Byrd story? Do you think that's a true deal, or do you think that was a made-up story? So there's many parts to Admiral Byrd and his expeditions down there. You know, he was like an American hero. Mm-hmm. Back in the age of the uh, film reels, when you go to a movie – uh, and they play current event film reels before your movie started. Well, a lot of them were Antarctica and Admiral Byrd going to Little America and establishing an American base and doing all these world records like the first 
man to fly over the South Pole, and he also did the North Pole and a lot of expeditions in the polar region. So the guy was a hero, okay? Mm -hmm. And then he was tasked to be the lead admiral during Operation High Jump. Right. It was right after World War II. Well, I'll just tell you what the actual facts of this man are, and then I'll go into what is the speculation, which is his uh, supposed ledgers or journals. So he led Operation High Jump, which was an armada of ships coming from both directions, Atlantic and Pacific, going to different parts of Antarctica with superior air power. And they lost a ship down there called the USS Murdoch. Well, that ship name, there's a whole bunch of muddied information about that because supposedly it was lost in another battle. Um, but then they change names on things to kind of obscure the real history of that ship. Right. That's a whole other story. Yes. But Admiral Byrd met some kind of opposition down there because his six-month expedition turned around and hightailed it back after only two months. And on his way back, he gave an interview to a, a Chilean journalist. And that's when he said that there was that, that, Armies of the future, meaning America, is going to be confronted with an enemy that has the technological ability to fly pole from pole at incredible speeds. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, I don't think there's a plane today that we have that have been acknowledged that could fly pole to pole in one day at incredible speeds. <laughs> so how is he, uh, almost 75 years ago, talking about this kind of technology? and calling off Operation High Jump so prematurely. Yeah. So clearly, uh, Admiral Byrd, not only with his experience down there, knowing what he knew, the lay of the land, the terrain, and what it takes to mount an expedition, to be leaving in a hurry and not complete his uh, mission, well, that speaks volumes right there. So remember always, what's not being said could also speak volumes sure and i think what's not being said on the admiral bird mission is what really happened to them and so the narrative that many in the ufo community and the esoteric studies are are seeing is that they were confronted with some superior technology uh the the data points most of them that point to what happened that day well they were going on some bombing missions in New Schwabenland. And uh, one of the missions didn't come back, just went radio silent, gone. Mm-hmm. It was the second day they were going out to hit the new Berlin base. Mm-hmm. And those planes just went totally off the radar, missing radio silence, never heard from those guys ever again. Right. And then within days, there was this confrontation at sea with uh, Admiral Byrd and, and his uh, armada of ships. And there were several craft that came up out of the ocean. Again, we're talking about technology that we still don't acknowledge to this day. Mm-hmm. These craft came, uh, we couldn't shoot them down. They pretty much had free reign. And rather than wiping out the whole armada, they just took out the uh, USS Murdoch. And they basically, uh, as it was described, some kind of laser beam sliced it in half and sank it to the sea. So there would be another expedition to go try to find that 
do yeah. a, a recovery mission. And if we could find that it was sliced in half by a radar, then it would prove that this uh, <laughs> this narrative was correct, that they did and were confronted with some kind of craft that could fly pole to pole at incredible speeds. So the jury is still out whether the Nazis had made a pact with reptilian or other malevolent ETs, and they were the ones flying the craft that day in defense of the German Antarctica position, or if it was the Germans themselves, if they had then backward engineered the technology in their Skoda works, uh, in what is today uh, Czech Republic, where they were doing a lot of their backward engineering. It was like the uh, Area 51 to Nazi Germany's. Right. And incidentally, at the end of the war, all the material, all the personnel, and only a few of the blueprints survived, but everything else gone, disappeared, or in the unlikely event, you were a scientist and you didn't get out in time, you got a bullet in your head. They were not sparing any expenses to keep this quiet. Mm -hmm. And it's also known that there were boatloads of material and personnel that were fleeing Germany via the submarine, their U-boat fleet, which was still very much intact at the end of the war. And dozens of those U-boats have still never been accounted for. Right. In fact, some of those U-boats were turning up in South America the summer after the war, yep. uh, surrendering soldiers three months after the end of the war in Argentina. They were coming from Antarctica, maybe ran out of fuel or food or something like that. But uh, the, the war continued on. And this, this is the whole concept of a third force being out there. So we all know about who were the big players in the Cold War. You've got the the Allies and Western Europe on one side, and you got the Communists on the other side. But in fact, there was a third force the whole time, and this is the Fourth Reich. They just went underground after the war. Right. And I mean that literally. They were act actually masters at building deep underground military bases, and that's where we got a lot of the technology to build our underground bases here. They built them in South America, and they built them in Antarctica. And so the loot via Martin Bormann at the end of the war, it just got sucked out of Europe. Tons of gold, priceless right. paintings that have still yet to be recovered, and the stocks and bonds of a lot of large corporations. Why do you think Western Germany and now unified Germany has always been the biggest powerhouse of Europe. Right. Because yeah. they never really lost the war. They just went underground and became the third force. And <laughs> they were an intelligence force, not a standing army anymore. Right. But they infected America through Project Paperclip. You know, NASA was started by former Nazis like Werner von Braun and Hermann right. Oberich. And they, they would even say, Hermann Oberich, that is a. Uh, going away party, where did you get the technology to do all this stuff? And he says, we had help from our friends above. <laughs> so they have been interceding with, with UFOs from the a craft that came down in the Black Forest in the 1930s to Mussolini had a, a much more intact craft also that he donated to German scientists for backward engineering. So they have been on the cutting edge of this anti-gravity technology now going on close to a century. Wow. It shows you how much has been really held, withheld from the public and this alternative vision of our history that has been withheld from us. Right. 
I guess you can see that uh, they were probably getting help during the war too, because the Foo Fighters, they were uh, reporting that orbs and such would uh, come around their aircraft and uh, their uh, planes would shut down and uh, they'd stop, start dropping out of the sky like birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they had some kind of technology or... Well, my question is, though, if they had so much help from them, how come they didn't actually win the war? <laughs> well, at that point, they were just getting overrun. They, yeah. they made some, mainly Hitler should never have been in charge of the armies, especially during uh, Operation Barbarossa when they went into Russia. Huge, huge, huge mistake. Germany should have won that war. They really should have. Yeah. But they blew it, and it was mainly Hitler blew it when those armies got stranded in Russia yeah. without being able to uh, protect the frontier. Russia just, they were just on a beeline to Berlin. And yeah. indeed they were bringing out many of their exotic weapons towards the end of the war. And the allies were utterly terrified. Mm -hmm. They even had uh, test runs to New York city to drop an atomic bomb. Right. It could be that the Germans were the first to uh, detonate a, an atomic bomb. But they certainly had a flying craft in the very famous tank battle of Kursk outside of Moscow in 1943. There were many witnesses that saw a craft hovering. It wasn't in battle. It was more observing uh, the formation of the tanks and stuff. But uh, many dozens of people on the Russian side especially I think the Germans were sworn to secrecy, but they were rolling out some of their high technology towards the end of the war, but it was just too little too late. Just yeah. like raining down the V2 rockets on London. Hey, they invented uh, the jet engine and right. that came over and started NASA. Yeah. And the, the Mercury and the Apollo program. That was all uh, these uh, Roman candles that were pushing something out into outer space. I mean, that is so antiquated technology today when the space force that Trump has just announced a couple of months ago, when we start seeing the kind of hardware that they have there, then, then we're going to see some real stuff. No, Anti-gravity, zero point, and uh, traveling at very, very high speeds. Yeah. yeah. So uh, before I go any further here, Brad, I've got uh, some uh, questions here for you. Uh, okay. One from uh, Kevin Cummings. Uh, he goes, uh, "Hi, Brad. Uh, what was uh, what was it like seeing it for the first time, uh, Antarctica?" Yeah. Sure. Well, um, Antarctica is a land of of stark beauty. There's only a thousand people that live there in the middle of the winter and it's the fifth largest continent of the world. So it's utterly deserted. Uh, the, the distances are very vast to try to explore all of Antarctica would be a very large undertaking. And it's a very cold climate, of course, to the bottom of the world. It's covered with ice and the mountains where we were at in the northern Palmer Peninsula are beautiful, soaring straight out out of the ocean, black <clears throat> mountains. And then combined with the blue of the ocean, uh, white, black, and blue were the, the primary colors. So that's what it was like at first, just to see this 
ice continent in very stark terms where no towns or people have ever lived. I mean, only uh, the skeleton crews of research stations that stay over the season. Mm -hmm. uh, but none of those are permanently inhabited. Those people have to cycle through. And then uh, if you ever want to close a base down, you have to remove every single thing with it per the Antarctica Treaty. So it was really the, the experience of getting down there and seeing like no green, no, no orange, <laughs> no, no earthen colors at all. Right. Black, white, and blue. And then it dawned on me that when I scuba dived really deep one time in the uh, Sinai, place called the Blue Hole in Dahab, Egypt. I met this German guy. He's like, come on, man, let's go find the tunnel through the Blue Hole. And you could just rent tanks, do whatever you want to do. You kill yourself. Well, too bad <laughs> <for> you. <laughs> Turns out the tunnel was way down there. It was like about 300 feet deep and uh, about 250. I said, that's enough for me. But I'll never forget it because all the primary colors except for blue go away. And the right. only colors you see at depth when you scuba dive over 200 feet down is blue, black, and white. And so it, it's kind of surreal in that way. Just like scuba diving, you're weightless and you're floating around in this alien world. Being in Antarctica is quite like visiting an alien planet, to be honest with you. Uh, the animals are very tame. Of course, seeing wild penguins was a new experience and huge colonies of thousands of them. Mm -hmm. You can smell them before you could see them, was our saying, mm. because it, it would just be so smelly of all their excrement. Sure. Um, but all, all the other animals, just no fear of humans at all. A whale swam right under our boat. I think he was just checking us out. Uh, you go by seals on an iceberg, and they're just looking at us like we're looking at them, like, incredible curiosity so cool a, a real eye-opener as far as natural beauty and the stark contrast of black blue and white how far is it american people or anybody can actually go uh before they get shot at or turn back or whatever <laughs> i heard there's a lot of off limits out there you know certain places well i actually i think that's a misconception i i think you can go anywhere you want if you have the money to go. Now there is a big no-fly zone over a portion of uh, the South Pole. That's an absolute fact. Right. Why they want to enforce that with nobody down there is really a big mystery and kind of pays into some credibility of the Admiral Byrd story. And I didn't really get into um, sort of the speculation of his journals mm -hmm. and his writings, but he said that he flew his plane into this giant opening near the South Pole that was so big that he had no fear of flying into, turning around and then flying out, which he said he did. Right. So there is some kind of massive cavity there. And I, I have some pictures that I put on my presentation. I can't verify for sure if they're not Photoshopped. Mm -hmm. But there are some uh, whistleblowers, namely a guy named Brian S. with Linda Bolton Howe that says he's seen it. and described it in the same way that I've heard it been described. So uh, there is a lot of high strange down there for sure. According to the birds also, maybe people are seeing shadows and crevices in some of those Google earth 
pictures and videos that are put out as well. I'm not always a, according to a the, true believer on that. According to most of the stories that I've heard about Bird, though, he he actually walked down into these caverns or whatever. He, you know, he's seen the grass or whatever. You know, he actually touched, uh, you know, the bottoms, <laughs> you know, however you want to say. Uh, right. seen, seen certain things that he wasn't supposed to, uh, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, and it definitely makes one wonder, uh, you know, how that was all just kept, you know, to oneself like that. I mean, you know, oh, obviously the journals and stuff, but nobody has any proof of that. I mean, we've yet to see the journals or actually got to read them or, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We're going by what they give us, obviously. But you Yeah. Know. Yeah, it'd be good to examine them and then also to to test his handwriting or right. look yeah. at the ink, you know, really get into those journals and, and test the paper and so forth. And we can probably find out if they're authentic or not that way. Right. Yeah. Because there's been a so, lot of reports that are all hoaxed that, you know, some Texas, uh, I think it was Texas uh, newspaper guy or whatever, a journalist uh, wrote this whole spiel up with bird you know and whatever he actually did an interview with bird but he he went beyond you know the whole thing and made this whole thing up beyond bird <laughs> yeah <laughs> that'd be a good book title <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i i you know and so it always leaves that skepticism you know at a certain level and then of course we talked earlier about you know you got people like Corey good and them you know doing their thing and stuff like that so you you know, you're trying to wonder what is true and what isn't true. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. where the whole thing comes in. When you start getting into all these uh, definite hoaxes and conspiracies, you know, how do you actually muddle through it to get the right stuff out? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the problem I'm having with it. <laughs> now, earlier on, you uh, mentioned uh, the seal, Brad, and I uh, was watching one of your uh, videos. And uh, you had mentioned that um, Antarctica is essentially uh, the biggest desert in the world, and mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty dry down there. And uh, the captain that uh, you were partying with had right. uh, and showed you a seal that is incredibly 3,000 years old, and, uh, and it's just there, and it's perfectly preserved. Can you uh, tell us about that? Mm. Yeah, so I heard about that on New Year's Eve at the uh, – Ushuaia Yacht Club party that uh, Emily Infinity and I got invited to with our uh, ship captain and his wife. We really hit it off with them. And um, there were just so many interesting people there, other ship captains. And this guy had been going down for over 20 years. And I just really wanted to pick his brain. And he's even been to New Schwabenland. He says he was looking for those darts that Herman Goring dropped. Couldn't find them, though. Uh, but he was the one that told me about this seal, which made its way up somehow into one of these dry valleys, which is one of the driest places on earth. Hmm. And um, because of the uh, inhospitable climate and the dryness, dryness is actually a big problem down there. For example, uh, the South Pole Station, static electricity is really bad. Anything you touch, you get a shock from Sure. Yeah, so it's a big problem uh, not to touch things that you're going to get static electricity from. 
So just the dryness and the and the terrain uh, made the seal freeze dried, and it's it's preserved. It's the most studied dead seal in the world, this captain told me. So I researched it. I found that such an interesting story. And and this is the kind of real science that goes on down there. And half of my presentation is based on the real science that goes on at some of these uh, research stations. And we got to visit six of them. One of them is was a former British spy station. The Brits were spying on the Germans. <laughs> during World War II, and it's uh, Port Lockroy, which is now a museum, which perfectly preserves what it would have been like to live and work in one of these uh, research stations down there. And uh, and they have a post office. You can send a, a letter from the southernmost mailbox of the world there if you buy your postcard and your no postcard. Yeah. Cool. yeah, and then um, so another actually a seventh base, which was run by Argentina, was completely boarded up, but all you do is break a uh, zip tie and emergency supplies and a, a warm building for people that get uh, stranded in these uh, Mercator Islands, which was the last place we uh, dropped anchor before we sailed back on the Drake again. And then there were working bases, um, including the American Palmer Base, uh, I mentioned Arktowski, we went to Gonzalez, Chilean base, the Brown base, also run by Argentina. And then we had a really great time with the Ukrainians down at the uh, Vernansky base. And that was about the southernmost we went. Just the, the day we left, we went a little southern tact. We're about one degree north of the Antarctic Circle. Wow. And it was only about six weeks after summer solstice. So when we got that far south, we were getting about uh, 22 hours of daylight, only about two or three hours of pitch black night. And then there was some twilight in between. So like 18 hours of sunlight and uh, the midnight sun we got to experience down there too. But Rodansky was great because uh, they had a sauna and they let us take a sauna and a shower there. And we did the polar plunge after sitting in the sauna too. That was really Cool. But they have a bar there. It was another one of the British bases that they had um, acquired from the British for one silver pound, which is up in the bar. It's called the Faraday Bar, and it's the southernmost bar of the world. And the Ukrainians, they distill their own vodka. So the drinks were flowing that night, and huh. we were playing music and shoot pool and <clears throat> playing chess with them. It was a really fun night. And then there was another ship there. It was another Polish vessel with scuba divers on board, the Selma. And they were there that night, too. And uh, they became our good friends. And they invited us over on their ship the next day. And they showed us a whole bunch of videos and pictures of their scuba diving trip in Antarctica. Wow. And I was amazed to see the kind of sea life that lives in such a cold climate in the Southern Ocean. And I'll tell you guys, those photos were just as colorful and just as full of life as any coral reef I've ever seen. I was just amazed at what a world exists huh. in such a cold water climate down there. Wow. Speaking of um, uh, sea life, uh, there's a fish down there that, uh, that you had actually sent me an image of. Yeah. That, uh, the has, 
yeah, that has no hemoglobin, and yeah. uh, blood is like white or like translucent. That's right, blue blood yeah. or something. It's a completely unique species that lives down there under the ice. It lays its eggs under the ice, and it's a keystone species for penguins and seals to feed on. And they're really juicy because they got a lot of blood, <laughs> a lot of that clear translucent blood. Huh. And uh, wow. yeah, so this uh, marine biologist that I spoke to at the um, the Brown base, he was an Argentinian scientist working down there for the season. He was the only person who could tell us that that there was some paranormal experience at another one of the Argentinian bases. And it was called uh, the Belgrano II base in East Antarctica, not too far from New Schwabenland. And he said uh, the month before that some personnel at their base had seen some craft and orbs. Mm -hmm. And then interdepartmental banter got out to this base and they told them what they had seen. And so that was really about the only good eyewitness or firsthand information that we got about anything being paranormal like none of those sea captains knew anything about a craft under the ice or antediluvian civilizations and now that that group you talked about now is that the same group that uh came up missing for a few days and then uh when they did locate them at back at the base they ran to the choppers and stuff like they were scared to death and got the hell out of there is that the same same one i'm thinking of or heard about yeah, yeah i know what you're talking about that was another story from brian s to uh linda bolton Howe. okay some researchers went missing and when they came back they were ashen faced and scared about what they had seen and wouldn't talk about it and just right. wanted to get back and were perfectly quiet on the way back and didn't talk about it. uh no this is a different group this was um an argentinian base and they had uh just said that they had seen something mm -hmm. anomalous. But they didn't actually say what it was or? <laughs> well, they couldn't tell. The Argentinians couldn't tell. They just said they saw a craft and uh, some orbs. But those other scientists, that was a different story. That was uh, in a couple of years prior. Yeah, there's our, uh, there's our ice fish. There he is, yep. So it's related to the mackerel. I was going to say mackerel or barracuda. That's what it looks mm -hmm. like. Yeah. <laughs> and they're they're they've evolved completely to become a unique species in the Southern Ocean. And if you show the other uh, slide, Omar, of the uh, the fossils, this is um, this is a plesiosaur. This is the Loch Ness monster, uh, for lack of a better term found not far away from the Palmer base. This was a uh, cast imprint that we saw at Palmer. And the reason I sent this to you is because there were dinosaurs that once lived in Antarctica, including two species that are completely unique that were only found in Antarctica. Well, no, these, these are cold blooded reptiles. They would not be able to live in the cold conditions that are present there today. So clearly these creatures were part of Antarctica when it was joined with the other 
continental land masses in Pangaea or Goanoana land as we know it. And those continents separated and took some of the species with them. And in my presentation, I show the crossover of different flora and fauna that can be matched in the different continents. And the only way that those species could be in both places is if those continents had uh, drifted apart. Mm -hmm. Thus proving the uh, continental drift theory and also giving rise to the notion that Antarctica may be the home to Atlantis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what David Wilcock and Corey Good say is that a portion of Atlantis uh, drifted down the mid Atlantic Ridge, probably the Western Antarctic region. And that is where one of the uh, presumed pyramids is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk to the uh, expedition company that goes down there, they uh, I, I showed them my pictures and they said, uh, most especially with the uh, pyramid poking out of the ice, which has been featured on ancient aliens. And they All pretty right. much yeah. say that this, this is real. Well, they said, nah, it's just a nun attack. I said, well, what's a nun attack? And they said, that's just an attractive rock formation sticking out of the ice. That's all it is. Right. Yeah. So they did a whole episode on that and they should have maybe talked to these guys, but <laughs> however, so I talked, I asked the, the company, I go, well, did you ever stop there? Did you ever check it out? Did anybody ever go climb it or take some samples? Or like, no, no, we just fly over and say, Hey, look at that. None huh. of that looks like a pyramid. So what, nobody's what, ever done any samples or testing. So maybe it is. I could still be. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. If, if it was a pyramid, you think they'd be all over that sucker. You know? uh, yeah. You right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First stop pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was going to ask you about that uh, when you were mentioning earlier with the uh, black rocks and uh, the black stone. I was going to say, uh, what about that pyramid that uh, looks all black down there? Right. But uh, uh, you just answered my uh, my question there, Brad. You've been hitting up like on all the notes that I've taken here. <laughs> and this is the problem that I'm having right now. Uh, you know, when I do my shows and stuff and we talk about such things as this and people bring it up and they want to know, you know, is this really true? Is it this and that? Well, it's still all speculative because unless you're down there, or, you know, you know, somebody has been there and seen it, you know, such as yourself or, you know, these other guys, you have no definitive proof. Right. And pictures, I mean, you know, pictures are pictures. Let's face facts here. You know, you can make out anything you want into a picture. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it really makes you wonder, you know. <laughs> sure does. Yeah, it's crazy. So another thing I want to ask you, Brad, uh, there's a... Uh, lot of uh you know meteorite activity that happens down in uh, antarctica and a lot of these meteorites they just hit the ground and just or the ice and it just kind of lays there and sticks out in the you know the backdrop of uh of white ice um you know did you find any uh meteorites yourself no i didn't and i wasn't in that area to be able to look for it either but mm -hmm. i did send you that image if you want to share that of scientists that do go down there and every season they are specifically on the search for meteorites because 
right. Antarctica being 99% covered with uh, ice, uh, they can find these meteorites that, that fall down. Well, don't they, have, uh, don't they have like a giant telescope there somewhere along that edge line or something that they were building or um, uh, one of those islands? I'm trying to think now what the hell the damn thing was called now. Uh, <clears throat> there where it they, is. Uh, Going to do some astrology work there or, you know. Yeah, there are some, a lot of uh, instruments at the South Pole Station, but they find most of the meteorites along the uh, Trans-Antarctic Mountain <coughs> where the uh, glaciers seem to spit them out. Where, where they, yeah. Wow, that's something. Now I heard, uh, I heard a long time ago that uh, there's a lot of uh, Japanese corporations that uh, go down to Antarctica in uh, search of meteorites so that uh, they can take them back, make jewelry out of them, or make things out of them, or extract whatever out of them, and uh, kind of sell them off onto the market. Do you know if that's true? Well, if they did, they're doing it illegally. Mm -hmm. uh, any samples would have to be uh, very scientifically collected. You can see these guys are pretty much like wearing hazmat suits. Yeah, they're not even touching it. Yeah, yeah, they're they're treating it like, uh, yeah, you can't oh, be contaminated. <laughs> right. So they go to the Johnson Space Center for testing, and then universities can request them, and they do release them mm -hmm. uh, for additional study at uh, through our university system. So it's a pretty fair way of, of doing it, but uh, per the Antarctica Treaty, that uh, the whole continent is considered like a world biosphere. Yeah. And as such, um, it is in the articles of the treaty that it is to be used for scientific purposes and open to anyone, including people who want to travel down there. So it is a bit of a misconception that you're going to get held up by the military or stop. I thought we were too, but once we were down there, we had pretty much free reign to do anything we want anywhere we wanted. Wow. See a penguin colony. You could get in uh, the Zodiac and go over there and check it out. And of course, being respectful anywhere you go. Sure. But um, it was, well, it, it was. Uh, is this the same place that they found the meteorite that had the microbial, uh, thing into it years ago. Yeah, you're good, Clarence. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So about 20 years ago, there was a meteorite that was collected and it was tested and determined that it came from Mars. Right. And yep. it was ejected after a much larger meteorite hit Mars and then spit up a bunch of stones out of the atmosphere and into outer space. And uh, one of them made it to Antarctica and they found it. And when they put it under the microscope, saw that it had some microbial life forms. Mm -hmm. And that was a big deal back then because it was the first evidence of life outside right. of the planet. Right. Yep. Cool. <laughs> That's so awesome. So this is a... Why don't you go back go one more? Yeah. <laughs> okay, you want to talk about this one? So this is, okay, yeah. The, I like to start with this one. This is one of the 
the first slides in my presentation. This is a map that just came out by uh, NASA only a few years ago. On the far left there, you can see the southern tip of South America and those little white specks are the Patagonian ice fields, which after Greenland and Antarctica are the third largest glacier fields in the world. Wow. Which I got to see when I was in Southern Patagonia too. And then that's the Drake Passage area where your cursor is. That's approximately where we cross back and forth to get to the Palmer Peninsula, which you see sticking out there. And that Northern tip of the Palmer Peninsula, which is in red, is experiencing extreme melting and there's a lot of evidence for that there were a lot of researchers that we talked to that were studying it and there are huge ice fields that are melting though so that you can see the mountain range behind there were ice shelves that have disappeared revealing islands that weren't known before and now how, and, how many animals are the animals are changing uh, because of the climate as well. So you have different species of penguins wow. that are coming what down do there. By, what do you mean by changing, Brad? <clears throat> well, I mean that in this particular area that we visited, there was a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence. warming. But let me make a point. You see in blue there, well, those areas are experiencing cooling and even accumulation of ice. Hmm. So it's really bizarre that mother nature somehow knows how to balance itself out because some parts are growing in ice and are colder and then other regions in red are melting and are getting warmer. And this is probably why we haven't seen any dramatic rise in the sea level. Right. Somehow mother nature is balancing itself out. So it takes away and yet it gives. Yeah. That's right. So what what do they figure? There's more ice being made than there is melting? Is that what they're coming up with? Or about the same, you think? Well, it's about the same because about the sea same. levels don't rise really dramatically if they are only a couple millimeters. Mm -hmm. It's but just how, how it's almost a line from one end of that to the other where the other red spot is straight across there. It's almost like you could divide that right in half, you know. Oh, you can. Here. So that's like the dividing between West Antarctica and East Antarctica. Yeah. And some topography maps I show of Antarctica free of ice, it's <laughs> actually two continents. Okay. Uh, and there may even be a water channel right through the middle of uh, those two uh, large ice shelves. So the polar plateau on the right there in East Antarctica, well, that's over two miles deep. Wow. And that is the largest capture of fresh water in the planet, much, much larger than the Great Lakes. Mm. And if that were ever to slip off of East Antarctica and drop into the sea, well, then then it would be like a, a glass that was filled and you put ice cubes in it and it would overflow. Then you would see extreme uh, sea level rises around the world, much like Al Gore showed in the original Inconvenient Truth, which hasn't come true yet, and right. this is the reason why. Yeah. This is some science that he didn't know 20 years ago when he made that movie, 
that mm-hmm. somehow Mother Nature has this way of balancing itself. If one region is melting very rapidly, another area will grow in ice. Mm-hmm. Quite strange. Yeah. It's almost makes, uh, it's the matrix. <laughs> while, while we're looking at this, and I'm, and I'm just spinning things here through my mind, uh, Omar and I were talking about the uh, polar shifts, uh, you know, stuff like that with the magnetic fields and, you know, things like that, which we know comes from the molten center of the earth. And the earth itself tilts on its axis and you got the wobble and the whole nine yards. And, you know, they're changing our GPS all the time with the coordinates and different things. Now, do they see a big change down there in the southern magnetic uh, anomalies or not? Yeah, much? so I think you're referring to the uh, magnetic poles yes. on the move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, because the one in uh, the northern sea, uh, the northern part of the planet, the magnetic north pole is rapidly moving across the Arctic Sea towards Siberia. And mm-hmm. it had been relatively stable in the northern part of a Hudson Bay. Right. Now, all of a sudden, that one's on the move. And the one in the southern continent is moving as well. And the, the magnetic south pole is actually off the continent. Is it really? Yeah. It's, wow. it's on the move as well. And you would think it's probably logical so that they would counter one another if one magnetic pole is moving one way, then the other is going to counter the other way. Mm-hmm. But see, that's not always the case. And I read an article about that not long ago where you could have one or the other change, you know, in such a direction. But, you know, one would actually stay still and the other one would move. But apparently this time it's they're both moving, you know, like you said. So that's pretty interesting. The uh, they've uh, observed like cosmic rays coming out from uh, out of Antarctica, uh, right? Scientists have right. Is that uh, connected somehow to the uh, to the uh, South Pole swiftly moving along, or is that due to like huge chambers in within the continent itself? Yeah, I'd say probably more of that uh, because they were detected at the South Pole. Uh, neutrinos and cosmic waves coming out of the planet rather than normally being bombarded coming in. Right. But the magnetic South pole, it's actually um, just off the screen on the bottom right. There is about where it is now. Wow. Yeah. And it's making its way towards Australia. So if there was a pole shift, Australia could become the next Antarctica. Next Antarctica. Right. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm depending on where our uh, magnetic North Pole landed, maybe Siberia, maybe California. I've seen well, models for both. They say it's over Siberia now. It's actually gotten into Siberia. Gotten in there. Okay, then, yeah, then they'd be screwed, and Europe would be a frozen continent as well. Yeah. Hmm. But I think the continents would move around a, bu- a bunch. You would and, think, uh, yeah. And then Antarctica would melt. And what would be revealed is similar to this. This is what it would look like without the ice. And Mm -hmm. underneath the ice, you have all these lakes, which are represented as those black dots. And just like any lake in the world, you have an outflow river. Lake Vostok is really interesting 
because this is one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world. Wow. It's about the size of Lake Ontario, one of nope. our great lakes. Wow. And this one has just been penetrated through and by uh, the Russian scientists who have a base there called Vostok. That's where the geomagnetic south pole is located too. And that's where you see these southern lights. Hmm. The uh, Aurora okay. Australis, it's called down there. Yeah. Right. Up here and so they Vostok. just got into Lake Vostok in 2016 with a clean uh, drill bit and went down and collected a sample. And it came back with uh, some microbial life form that has never been seen before. No, okay. wow. it came off of a fish, which would have been an un unknown species. A whole new species, huh? Whole new. Wow. Could be down there in Lake Vostok. Also, when I do my presentation, I, I show how uh, Antarctica has volcanoes all over the place. Mm -hmm. It is the most volcanically active continent in the world. There are 91 active volcanoes. Really? In Antarctica, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's some of them spewing out lava there's one called mount erebus near mcmurdo that has a a lake of lava in it it's only one of two of its kind in the world the others in africa where there's always a molten lake of lava right in antarctica mount erebus and uh there are other volcanoes that produce germal geothermal hot springs so for example in the new schwabenland region I think one of the regions, the reasons the Germans chose this is because there's an area called the Schumacher Ponds. And Schumacher was the name of the pilot who landed a, uh, a sea-bearing plane in the Schumacher Ponds. And while his team was out exploring some crevices in the glacier, Schumacher did some samples. And he pulled up water from the pond they were in, and he found that the deeper he went, the warmer the water gets. Usually it's the other way around with right. a cold water lake. And so they determined these never froze over. The Schumacher ponds stay uh, free of ice because they are warmed through the geothermal features. So ball. that's what Corey Good says is going on with, some, with this breakaway civilization that's down there. Uh, that has these massive chambers under the ice. And I could just say that it is plausible that the geothermal features would create these large domes under the ice. Sure. And it wouldn't be that super cold and you'd be out of the elements, almost yeah. like the way Eskimos build their igloos but to get out of the storm. Be enough uh, nutrient for something to live like that, though. You know what I'm saying? Right. That that's you know. <laughs> and how much of that is salt water? No, it's no salt water. It's all fresh water, it's right? It's all fresh water, yeah. Yeah. That's you salt. got like the cenotes, okay, you know, like in Mexico and different places, you know, in Honduras, you know, down in Ecuador and that, which are half and half, you know. And I'm kind of wondering about some of these if they were the same way or if they were all just fresh water. You know, yeah, these are all freshwater lakes, freshwater rivers. Wow, and it's freshwater polar plateau. Hmm. 
So that is the largest concentration of frozen fresh water in the world. That's remarkable. Yeah, it's quite a resource. And also another interesting thing about Antarctica is uh, recently um, I did a video where uh, they found uh, the uh, deepest uh, land canyon on Earth um, underneath uh, Denman, Denman Glacier. It uh, goes down about uh, three and a half kilometers um, deeper than uh, the Marianas Trench and um, the Dead Sea. Mm. So I wonder if that uh, has anything to do with anything. Just another unusual land formation in Antarctica, the one of the most uh, unknown places on Earth. It's yeah. been said that we know more about uh, the surface of other planets and about the deep sea ocean than we do about uh, the fifth largest continent in the world because what's under the ice still remains virtually unexplored. What about the map that shows land and stuff? What is the deal with that? Yeah, so here's the Piri Reese map. Yeah. This which uh, was only two decades after Columbus discovered the Caribbean. And so it says in the liner notes that it was copied off of a source map that was much older. Right. It yeah. came from the uh, Library of Alexandria. They're claiming and, 900 AD or something like that, or what they're saying, or, you know, something. Well, this map, I think it was 15, 16 or around then. You can still see it in a museum in Istanbul. Wow. But what's so remarkable is that it shows uh, the contours of South America, which had only been briefly sighted by the first explorers. Right. In fact, Magellan discovered the Magellan Straits. He was the one that sailed around South America first in 1520. Right. And this map predates him. Yeah. So how the the author of this map could have known the contours of South America and the Caribbean. And you can even see Africa in the upper right corner there uh, with the animals and so forth. And then the islands off of South America and Antarctica free of ice. Yeah, right. It's one of the greatest treasures in cartography that can be found. Yeah. I'd love to go to Turkey and uh, and see this. Me too. Yeah, exactly. If the travel ban ever lifts. Yeah. <laughs> now we're all under house arrest. Yeah, no kidding. Right? We're in place. Uh. So earlier, earlier you were mentioning about uh, Atlantis. Uh, I want to ask your opinion. Do you think uh, with uh, Charles Hapgood's um, Earth crust displacement uh, that Antarctica might have possibly been uh, like in between uh, South America and uh, Africa, and it just kind of like just counterclockwise slid down to the bottom of the world where it is today? Yeah, well, right along the uh, middle of the Atlantic Ocean is the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and it too is volcanically active. So some of the mm -hmm. fault lines, one of the main fault lines that also connects Antarctica, it goes right through that area that the Nazis claimed, the Schumacher Ponds region. Mm -hmm. And so it's conceivable when the continents were moving that maybe a portion of that 
shifted right down the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and became West Antarctica. And that's incidentally where Corey Good says the uh, findings have been occurring. Because mm -hmm. East Antarctica, if you go back to the uh, NASA slide, it's a little easier to see the contour of the land of Antarctica when we're talking about it, is much, much older. So yeah, that whole, that big portion, that big uh, wedge to the right is East Antarctica. And that continent is over 3 billion years old. So right. that is one of the wow. original land masses where West Antarctica, that long uh, spine is only 700 million years old, much, much mm -hmm. younger in geological terms. So that could have broken off. That could have, that portion, uh, West Antarctica on the left there, the much newer landmass. They're, they're indeed, they're definitely two landmasses. It's maybe they connect, maybe they don't. Some maps without the ice show that there are even uh, channels that may go between the two and would have been discovered by the Nazis too. They were all underneath what the ice shelves of Antarctica. If you go back one more slide, uh, Omar, back to the flat map or the flat deal there, uh, <clears throat> you can see a separation there of west yeah. and east. Right there. Right that's there. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. That's called the Trans-Antarctic Mountains that you see there in the middle. Yeah. And that that is also a volcanic uh, mountain range. There you go. Like our Cascade Mountains mm -hmm. that stretch from BC, Canada down to California. So that would explain the youngness for the west side, if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. there are volcanoes all along the, the western uh, side there as well, yeah. including an uh, island we went to called um, Deception Island. And we sailed into the caldera of a sunken volcano, and it was still active. There was smoking black sand and... Wow. Uh, warm water. Had the tide not been going out, we could have stripped down and laid down and uh, taken a hot spring. No kidding. And the, the wow. cold water was coming back. That's amazing. And see, yeah. Hawaii Hawaii right now is doing the same, well, it has been for hundreds and thousands of years, where you got this molten lava spewing out constantly on the ocean floor, and it's making mountains. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it, to me, it's the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. ribs. Yeah. So I'm glad you got this one, uh, Omar. This is the Conan base. Yeah. That I was talking about earlier. So these are what have been described to me as uh, the top of a tent or holding down uh, some kind of canopy to cover up this big machine that uh, was seen in 2004. 13 hmm. and you can still go see it on the wayback machine i have a couple screen captures of it but uh yeah that's the big machine on the top there a little bit to the right and then it could come down right here uh yeah i'd say this is the best evidence for one of the three craft under the ice that are presumed to be up there not sure what that hole is. Maybe that's still an entrance for researchers to go in. Mm. And there's nobody there now? No, it's a seasonal base, so mm. they would have all left by now. Okay. 
this uh i guess this just would be just the part of the picture right the red the red in here i don't know what the redness is And then there's this one here, Brad, that I've... Hmm. Okay, come on. Well, you can see that the uh, New Schwabenland region of Antarctica on the top there. New Schwaben? New Schwabenland. It was named after the first ship that went down there for the expedition party called the New Schwabia. Hmm. And Schwabia is a region in, uh, around Germany. And so I guess the name just stuck. New Schwabenland. Now, how many miles is it you figure... Uh, from the tip of the peninsula where you guys were to the edge, you know, to the main continent, you know, to the main. Oh, over a thousand miles. A thousand? Oh, it's huge. Oh, it's half of the United States, damn near. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I know where you're going now here with this. This is also really interesting. Yeah, this is that cave. Yeah. Yeah, or it looks like some kind of underground base entrance. Mm-hmm. If you go in a little further, you can see even like a manufactured rim around it. I show these in my presentation. These are all in the speculation category. I want <laughs> people to make their own minds up about what it might be or what it might not be. How big a hole you figure that is? Yeah, I've heard estimates that it's big enough to fly a plane into. Really? Conventional yeah, airplane. Yeah. So would that be the same into, you think? You think bird could that be the one bird sent into? Well, this isn't in the area of the South Pole. Okay. Uh, and incidentally, there's another entrance that I found not too far away, maybe 10 miles away, on another exposed rock outcropping from this one. This is the most famous one mm -hmm. because it's the most defined and distinct when you look at it. The other one I saw is similar in shape and size, but you can't quite make it out as well like the dome on top of this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really fascinating one. It is, yeah. And you just got to think, what are you doing? That very well could be a, a massive lava tube too. You know, I've said that before. It makes you wonder if that's what that is. You know what I'm saying? Back in the day, it was spewing lava out of it, you know? Yeah, but the way it's so rounded and... uh shows that lip around the entrance. To me, it looks right. like it's manufactured. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Yeah, no doubt. It's amazing. I mean, I'm not trying to debunk everything. Don't get me wrong. I'm just coming up with other uh, ideas, you know, <laughs> how it was formed or if it was formed or what, you know. Yeah. Um, 
How There's tall? another one that I'm trying to look for here, bro. How the, tall uh, mountain range you figure that is? How what? How tall you figure that mountain range is? Oh, gosh. I, I haven't looked into this particular site, but <clears throat> the tallest mountain in Antarctica is Vincent Massif. And it's like 14,500. It's mm. not really that big. Okay. Taller than Australia's, though. Right. Yeah, it's still a pretty good chunk. Yeah. Yeah. 14.5 is not a wimpy mountain. No. I mean, there are a lot of people that want to climb all the <laughs> tallest mountains on all seven continents. Hmm. So that that expedition company that I've been talking to, they uh, they take a lot of people out there specifically to climb Vincent Massif. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I carry a lot of oxygen. <laughs> well, it's not like Everest, which is twenty nine thousand. Right? Yeah, it's like half. And my sip is less than half, yeah. or about half. Yeah. <laughs> of course, with me, I, I need marked my it out, but I'm my stairway. Yeah, this is a fun tool playing around with Google Earth. Cool. I can yeah. never get mine to work right. I swear, every time I try to use it, it gets fouled up. Uh, such a pain. <laughs> yeah, same here. I'm trying to look for the uh, the craft that uh, Brad ha had on one of his uh, presentations, where it looks like it's you know like right in right in the ice, just buried there. But well, you're a good me. student, Omar, to <laughs> copy down all those GPS coordinates. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we're in the right area. Okay, you get a gold so star. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you get a gold star in your homework assignment, Omar. Good job. <laughs> awesome, man. I love it. <laughs> cool. All right. Fascinating. Awesome. Uh, really, uh, really appreciate your. Uh, um, it's always a pleasure. Learned a lot, and uh, you know I look forward to uh, hearing the next time. I've got uh, you know all these uh, GPS that you had on your uh, presentation. I was just crazy, just writing them down. It's like I gotta check this out. I gotta check this out. My wife's sitting there and. Because she's right into this stuff too, right? Because uh, she watches oh, a lot of uh, secure team tech, right? So sure. uh, she's always looking for stuff in Antarctica. Uh, so when I started pulling up your stuff here, right, and I was like, look, baby, look, look, there's a, there's a spaceship right here. And there's another one right over here. And she's like, what? That's some really cool shit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So again, I like, uh, people, I like it when people follow up and do their own self-discovery. Yeah. I mean, that's how I found a lot of this stuff, too. I, I got information from other sources and just independently verified it myself. And it's fun. I like doing it. It's what research. Yeah, me all too. And, uh, I like it. Uh, you know, it gives me the opportunity to learn. Right. That's why I like doing shows like this. Right. So when I talk to, uh, you know, say, for instance, somebody like yourself and 
I go do and do my research on you and uh, watch uh, as many videos as uh, yours possible, read books. And then, uh, and then the things that you're saying, and uh, you know, and even in your uh, presentations, you're saying, you know, hey, look, you know, here's the GPS, write it down and uh, go look for it yourself. You know, just don't take my word for it. And right. uh, and I like right. So uh, you know, I like I like doing that because uh, you know, one, you learn, and for second, it makes for an interesting talk, right? And uh, and third, you know, it shows me that um, you know that I'm giving you homage and respect by taking the time to uh, investigate and research what you're talking about and to come back and when I'm having a discussion with you, you know, it's based on those points that, uh, that you're talking about and then ask the questions that I didn't understand myself, you know, when you're talking and some things that you're saying and I'm like, what, you know, how's that possible or whatever the case may be, right? So, you know, for me, uh, you know, I really, I enjoy that. And then, uh, and then afterwards having to talk to the researcher or an author like yourself, you know, it um, you know it makes my day. You know, makes me happy, and I'm always like, yeah, that's my buddy there on Ancient Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Awesome stuff. All right, guys. Uh, so thank you very much, and uh, I will uh, provide uh, Brad's uh, website address. He's actually got a bunch of them. Uh, the primary one would be uh, bradolson.com. Uh, but uh, I will uh, add all of his uh, contact information, like, you know, his website addresses and uh, his uh, presentations and uh, webinars and such uh, on uh, in the descriptions of this video. But before we go, I remember seeing a video from you um, just a few months ago, and you were working on, like, uh, a TV series, right? Uh, that oh, had yeah. With Antarctica. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that's glad you brought that up. I've been trying to meaning to find the right time to bring it up. Yeah, so I uh, got all my footage and I filmed quite a bit down there. And I worked with a great video producer, director, and editor named Doc Skinner. Back in uh, December, I went out to his studio in Arizona for uh, a week. And we put together 16 episodes called Antarctica by Sale. And it's on the Sci Spy TV network. So I think if you go to SciSpy.com, S-C-I-S-P-I, Science and Spirituality Meet, uh, you'll find Antarctica by Sale, a 16-episode series that we produced, and we're putting out uh, one episode a week. Wow, that's so, all. Yeah, check it out. And we offer yeah. little clips from How did there. you uh, get hooked up with something like that, Brad? That's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, it's just people I've met in, in the conference circuit. Um, mm -hmm. Doc Skinner did Disclosure Con, and I spoke there, and, and we got on real great. And then uh, Suzanne Ross, she also produces a conference in Sedona called Beyond the Matrix, which unfortunately just got canceled for right. her yeah. Easter weekend conference. And then the weekend before, I was going to be speaking at Human Origins in Albuquerque and the week before that, I was going to be with my family in Aspen, and so that whole trip was about to start right around now. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. along came the virus. Yeah, now I got a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> are you in? Uh, are you in quarantine in uh, Nevada, or is that just uh, being no, not up? officially? But uh, in the Bay Area, where I just came from a couple days ago, they just said. Uh, shelter in place yeah and we had i had to make the official uh cancellation announcement for the how weird street fair 
on May 3rd. Now we're going to reschedule that to uh, September. We're just not announcing the date yet. And there's some loopholes and hoops that we got to jump through to get that date. So it's not quite official yet. But uh, sadly, we had to uh, say no to May 3rd. It's just too soon. And the CDC just issued an edict that all large gatherings for the next eight weeks mm-hmm. be canceled or postponed. And this was the case. It was within that eight week period. So no city government would issue uh, the go ahead to do an event if the CDC says you can't do it. So yeah, very disappointing, but uh, yeah, got a lot of time on my hands to finish my uh, 10th book. Beyond Esoteric, <laughs> Escaping Prison Planet will be out at the end of this year. So I got some work on my hand. It's all good. Cool. Make the most of my time. Just a quick question from you, Brad. I'm just wanting to get your knowledge or your two cents on this. Uh, I've stated here the past uh, week or so, a couple of weeks, that this coronavirus may have come from a meteorite that actually burned up over northeast China back in October. Do you have any thoughts on that you think it's possible or you know and i'm referring back because i know about the uh meteor they found in antarctica with the with the right. life on it so i'm you know yeah, <laughs> a little parallel there well that's news to me i've not heard that theory till you just brought it up but i would say that uh it's a bioweapon that got unleashed yeah. and it's a nasty one there's no yeah. doubt about it but I would also say, and this could be a whole show, and I have been speaking with uh, Brooks Agnew last night on his show and Laura Eisenhower on her show a couple days ago, hmm. that there's the possibility that this is being used by the White Hats to uh, initiate martial law. 160,000 sealed indictments, that this could be the takedown of the cabal behind hmm. the scenes. I hmm. hope. I'm an optimistic person. I'm trying not to be too naive about this, but this has been what's been said would be the circumstances to take out like the, the federal reserve system and Mm -hmm. um, these uh, knuckleheads that keep doing these false flag operations and, and it ties into the pedophilia stuff and, you know, and all these nefarious people that this could be the, the main awakening. And I can only hope we come out of this yeah. stronger and smarter and releasing a lot of this technology to the world. And that is supposed to be one of the end results. Right. Do you think that um, they have any connection to uh, 5G? Uh, like, yeah. Uh, you know, I they've do. got uh, remote schooling, remote work, uh, virtual school. So might it be that uh, they're rolling out this 5G to check it out and see how it works and uh, if it's viable to keep people in their houses and uh, get them to work from home, get them educated from home and and just kind of just like keep them there? <laughs> yeah, like this stay at home is never going to end. We're all going to be trapped here for the rest of our lives. Yeah, yeah. The whole 5G thing is very nefarious too. and. Boy, like I said, we could do a whole show on this, but uh, I have been. You know, the the city of Wuhan was the first smart city that was full 5G uh, blanketed. Yes. And uh, some videos you you saw when we just came on before the show, Omar was watching um, Sasha Stone just came out with a new 
video called 5G Apocalypse. Yeah, and they won't let it anywhere. I had it all over Facebook, and they took everyone. They're taking it down. Yeah, and that should tell you that that he's probably uh, cutting a little too close to the boat. Taking that video down. (laughs) Yeah, like that. (laughs) The way she explained it was how the 5G actually interferes with the oxygen, the O2 in your lungs and stuff in the water and stuff. Oh, it was amazing the way she put it together, you know, and I was like, yeah, I got to share this. And very next day, it was all gone. Nobody could open nothing. Yeah, wow. it was crazy. Really? Yeah. I'd like to see that. I sent it to you. I sent it to Mike. I sent it to everybody I knew that would be interested in this. It was just, it went nuts. I mean, I sent it everywhere. The very next day, everybody's telling me, I can't get it open. It won't open. It won't. They won't let me see it. They shut right email, off. Email it to me. Upload it onto uh, uh, cloud, Google I'll Drive. Put it in the uh, live chats right now, if I can. <laughs> way to do it. Let's see. Am I even yeah. logged in? I guess I'm not logged in. If you know what, Omar? I'll, I'll shoot it over to you right now on uh, Facebook Messenger, where we've been talking, and okay. then maybe you can share that if you want. There you go. I just put it over. But as soon as someone gets a good one that they can you know, a good place to open it and they can reshare it again, you know, just going to make them shut it off again, but (laughs) keep it going as much as we can, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But people haven't seen it. Got to see it. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And this is all part of the great awakening is starting to assimilate a lot of this information that's been withheld from humanity. Yeah, And this is why I'm so interested and involved and, publishing esoteric subjects because I think it's it's really a crime that we have been uh, not allowed to learn about this stuff which we need to know well we do need to know and our health depends on it so yeah, absolutely yeah. you absolutely have a right to know this information so yeah. it just it stinks that these social media companies feel compelled to uh, restrict our First Amendment rights freedom of speech we well, yeah, are exactly it is they claim they don't do that, you know, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. How could you not be doing it? I mean, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. when Google owns YouTube, you know what I'm saying? Yep. <laughs> They're both number one uh, search engines of all time. So, yeah. OK, you tell me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then Facebook's right in the back door with them. Yeah. You ain't telling me nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a conspiracy, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. We're conspiracy realists. Yeah, that's the right. truth. That's the truth. Conspiracy researchers. Never use the word theorist. That was con- connived by the CIA to throw out <laughs> yeah. the Warren Commission. Yeah, that's true. This <laughs> is me off. You know, uh, David Icke, he's, uh, you know, one of my, you know, greatest heroes, I would say. Uh, you yeah, know, the master. <laughs> For forever, and uh, you know, even today, you know, when he goes on to uh, you know shows such as this, you know, they always introduce him as the uh, you know the leading conspiracy theorist of the world, and uh, you know, it just pisses me off because I think to myself, you know, like you know, this guy's talking and giving you fact after fact after fact. Yep. So how can facts be conspiracies? You know, how can he be a conspiracy theorist when the guy's giving you, you know, constant constant facts? You know, that's like, uh, you know, somebody saying if Brad goes down to uh, Antarctica and he comes away with, 
you know, information and people start saying, oh, no, you know, it's a conspiracy, it's a conspiracy, mm -hmm. and trying to downplay, you know, his work or somebody else's work just by simply using that word conspiracy. You know, for me, if it's, uh, you know, if one fact lines up and then the second dot connects to it and then the third one connects to it, then it's no longer a conspiracy to me. It's, right. you know, then it, becomes, uh, then it becomes fact, right? It needs to be dug and investigated and researched and, uh, you know, go down to the bottom of it and find out what it really is. Yeah. Hey, Omar, why don't you show uh, the one photo I sent you from the boat of the um, Lemire Channel? I see Sustainable Solutions says, how the hell do you go down there and not have any images? Seriously, oh, I have hundreds of images and hundreds of videos. And if you go to, and it's spelled Sci Spy with an S, not a P. There you go. C I S P I dot com. If you want to go to Antarctica by sail, and there's all my footage, all all the best photos and so forth. But Omar, I did send you that one shot of the Lemire Channel. Um, yeah, I'm uh, just pulling it up right now, Brad. It's all good. My computer, yeah. My computer's a piece of shit. There we go. There it is. You're talking about David Ike there, Omar. I just got in a big uh, argument with a guy in in a different uh, group uh, about semantics and Mr. Ike, and uh, <laughs> I wound up booting his ass out of the rooms. What I did, <laughs> yeah. I told him I didn't base my opinions on semantics like he did. You know. <laughs> he was a little upset with me. Yeah, well, it's got to be based on that. Yeah, here's, here's a picture. This I the took one, off uh, Brad? Oh, wow. Yeah, there's my uh, GoPro camera, which I filmed uh, Antarctica by sale with two of those cameras. This is called the Lemire Channel. It was a very narrow 15-kilometer channel. This is our approach the first time. We were trying to go in it, but uh, there was too much ice. So we went and did Palmer uh, Base and then uh, – down to Vernansky, and then we came up through it the other way. That big, tall mountain you see on the right, it was only climbed for the first time in 1997. Really? So there's a summit in Antarctica that still are uh, just being climbed recently, and I think there's still a couple really tricky ones that have not been climbed. Wow. So that's why it's still such an unexplored territory down there. <laughs> How tall is that mountain, do you know? Uh, well, it rises straight from the sea. I think it's 2,200, if I remember it's correctly. Just beautiful, though. It is. Look at now that. you see what I mean about That's well, awesome. this is kind of a gray sky day. But if it were a blue sky reflecting the blue ocean, there's that black and the white and just glaciers coming down off of every crevice and just these sheer mountain peaks. I mean, really dramatic scenery. So, Brad, you didn't me fall of off the earth. I didn't fall off the earth, no. You didn't fall off the earth. So did uh, you if anything, I dispelled the flat earth theory. <laughs> it's ground, people. Sorry to break it to you, but I, there's no ice wall either. Uh, I have to laugh. Here's the image you were talking about earlier of uh, East yeah, Antarctica. Yeah, that's right. So when you play ice down on it then you get what is known as the bache map mm. and then there's uh antarctica without the ice without there, the ice yeah yeah well that's, that's, that's not really depicting it that's just showing the uh contour of the land and the ice 
but the and one above it, yeah, it is. there it is. The one above it that that's showing West Antarctica being divided from East yeah. Antarctica. There you go, and possibly uh, a water connecting underneath. Now they're saying the ice is what a mile and a half thick on Antarctica. Uh, the deepest part, it's two point two miles thick. Two point two, okay. and that's called the polar plateau. That big sheet of ice. Cool. The largest concentration of fresh water in the world. Mm. Yeah, it's a natural treasure. Uh, it's a international treasure. That's why the Antarctica Treaty protects it as a biosphere. Sure. It's not a national park. It's like a world park. Yeah, absolutely. Global. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Just got some uh, pictures here that I wanted to show you. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, you definitely are a world traveler, Brad. No doubt about it. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, it's... It's cool to get to see a lot of these places firsthand. And some of the other books that I wrote uh, when I was doing travel writing were on sacred places. So I did uh, sacred places, North America, sacred places, Europe, and sacred places around the world. Mm -hmm. Many of those locations I went and visited and photographed. And drew maps. And drew maps, yeah. And drew illustrations. Ah, there's a map I have not seen. Speaking of maps. What do you think of that, Brad? Yeah, I'm looking at it. What is this, the uh, underworld map? Or what uh, it would be like if it was tropical? Uh, yeah, like uh, just the ice is cool. gone. Yeah. And, uh, the Valkyrie Plain, I like it. Right up there in New Schwabenland. Hmm. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, well, if there's a pole shift, maybe uh, Antarctica yeah. will be a tropical paradise again someday. <laughs> you see, here's a, an image that I created that I thought would be... Uh, where roughly Ant or uh, sorry uh, Antarctica would have been. Ah, right okay. That's where I think, because right here you have that twist in the land, right? You have a twist, a kind of kind of twist like that. And I was saying earlier with the uh, Charles Hapgood uh, earth crust displacement that at some given time, this right here, even when we look at uh, in Pangaea, right, uh, they usually have Antarctica like down here, but I feel that's incorrect because if you take this, it fits right in here. And this part fits kind of like in here. And what I'm thinking that over a course of time, this just slid down, slid down. And then this tip right here, and also as well as with this tip, because it kind of looks like, you know they were connected and yeah, then they broke apart rolled like clockwise right. like and then landed down at the bottom so you have that tip right here right which at one time would have been connected to that right well keep in mind though that eastern side of antarctica may not even have been there at that time you know that's right this part right here and 
Yeah, if, if it is the way we were thinking earlier, uh, being at that so young, you know, that may not even have been part of the deal, you know. Yeah. So, and it would fit in there just like a, a, a piece of the puzzle. See, kind of like this image here. See what I'm talking about right here? There you go. Yeah, exactly. It's twisted. I'm, what I'm suggesting is at one time, this was like inside here. Right, like kind of like in between West Africa and, uh, or sorry, East Africa and uh, Western South America. Yeah. Right. This so is the one we're talking. The two could right. be joining. Uh, they had been separate land masses because one is much much older than the other. Yeah. By uh, three point three billion years old. Yeah. Big big difference, or two point three. Yeah, the oldest uh, rocks found on East Antarctica are a little over 3 billion years old. Yeah, and how old is the Earth? 4.5 billion? Yeah. Um, so what's that tell you? The original continents where the exactly. West Antarctica is only it has to be. Yeah. 700 million years old. Absolutely. It there, has was, to be. there was a, uh, uh, a dude from uh, McGill University <clears throat> in uh, Mon Montreal, and uh, he... Uh, discovered that on on um, Hudson's Bay Shield, right, where the Hudson's Bay is, he discovered rocks up there that were uh, about, uh, you know, close to about the same as Antarctica, about three and a half billion to four billion years ago. And uh, I was part of his uh, PhD paper. And, uh, you know, he confirmed or, you know, he hypothesized that this part, part of the land right here was one of the original uh, chunks of land that were like sticking out uh, in, uh, in the original earth, right? I, I forgot what the term is where you have like these land that's actually connected to the mantle sticks out and then it comes, it comes out in chunks, like four or five different chunks and one of them happens to be in Africa and through, uh, you know, uh, volcanic activity and such, the uh, you know, land's grown around, around that one main yeah. focal area. Um, I'll try to find the documentary that I saw that on and, you know, and I'll post it and share it. If you guys want to watch it, then uh, wonderful. If not, then, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, hey, guys, uh, so we're Thank at the two-hour mark. <laughs> Thank and, you very uh, much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, any uh, final thoughts before we uh, end our stream? Well, yeah, just if you want to know more about me, bradolson.com, uh, my books and those authors I publish, go to cccpublishing.com. We've got uh, Antarctica by Sale on SciSpy TV, and you can check out my YouTube channel, which is CCC Publishing, Esoteric Series. And I got about 100 videos on there, and then uh, several pages on Facebook for the Sacred Places 108 Destinations book. Antarctica by Sale has its own Facebook page, as well as uh, the Esoteric Book Series and ccc publishing so follow me on those places and uh check out some of my other work and uh see you out there in cyberspace again awesome <laughs> awesome guys thank you very much and uh thank you brad uh much respect buddy and uh again really appreciate the time and until next time uh be safe and uh look forward to uh seeing more of your stuff and uh looking forward to the 10th book coming out Sounds good. We'll have another interview when that comes out. And uh, Absolutely. talk all about that. Absolutely. Awesome, cool. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks, Clarence, for uh, 
co-hosting again with me. I appreciate it. It's always good to have that third guy there to uh, interject and have that exchange of idea. So uh, thank you very much for that, brother. And uh, until next time, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, thank you again, Brad. And uh, good luck, my friend. And uh, be safe. And I hope to uh, talk to you soon. Sounds good. Have a good night, guys. You too. Thank, thank you. Good night. Bye. Well, that was a great talk, eh, Clarence? Absolutely. He's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I had Brad on uh, last year with uh, Bruce Cunningham during the Olympics. And uh, he was uh, you know, watching the Olympics and doing the, uh, doing the uh, interview at the same time. I think uh, that's when he was living in San Francisco. <laughs> so I uh, really enjoyed that interview with him. And I've uh, been wanting to have him back for, uh, for a long time. Right then, uh, after he came back from uh, from Antarctica, I wanted to get him on, but then uh, you know, shitty shit happens in life, and right. really get to it. And then, uh, and then after that, you know, the uh, the platforms that I was working with, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they you know, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? right. So I want to bring Brad on because I know the quality of his research and you know what he has, and uh, and I wanted that to be uninterrupted, so. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad that uh, you know that was able to come through, and we had a really good talk and a really good interview. That you know, it gave us so much information. It's incredible. Oh, I so, know it. Yeah. Well, you, you know, when you said Brad Olson, I'm like, why the hell do I know that name? You know, <laughs> and I kept, I kept dinging me name. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to look it up. You know, so I went to Google and I hit Brad Olson. As soon as his picture popped up, I'm like, I know who that is. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I've heard him on Coast to Coast. I've seen him in different interviews and different things, you know. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I know who he is now, you know. Yeah, awesome. Fantastic. He's fantastic. I really enjoy his work. <coughs> right? And, uh, you know, he's got uh, real information, right? The uh, yeah. information. He's easy to talk to. And, I didn't uh, want to hit him. I didn't want to hit him too hard with the Corey Goody stuff and stuff like that because I don't know what he actually believes or doesn't believe. You know what I'm saying? Uh, even though I think Corey and him are full of shit, but that's me. I mean, that's you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm the same way with uh, with all of those guys, right? Uh, but maybe you know things would change if I actually got to speak to him person to person. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, like I have with Brad and uh, John Shaughnessy, and uh, you know, just list just goes on and on and on, right? right. So. You know, it's always, uh, I always find it's always good to have uh, somebody of uh, Brad's caliber to uh, to come on and, uh, you know, and, and pick his brain. Mm -hmm. right? You know, just simply pick oh. his brain. He started in 95, you and know, I was older at that time. And that's just it. You know, when I can talk to somebody like Brad, and because he's been there and he's talked to these other locals and, and you know, himself, and... He's, he's like, well, yeah, it's not really adding up, you know. <laughs> well, then that pretty much tells you, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so. Brilliant researcher and uh, yeah, speaker and writer. And, uh, you know, really, really enjoy his work. So, guys out there, uh, bradolson.com. And uh, you can check out uh, Antarctic by Sale on uh, uh, scispy.com. The, uh, the, the web address is in the uh, comments. And uh, that's a cispy.com. Here, I'll put it on the screen. Cispy.com. Check it out there. And uh, bradolson.com and uh, CCC Publishing. Uh, you know, he's got uh, he's got lots going on.
you know, that's uh, that's for sure. He's got lots going on. He speaks at uh, multiple events, uh, you know, like uh, he was saying, you know, last week he was talking at uh, UFOCon, and before that he was talking somewhere else, and before that somewhere else, and, you know, right. so, uh, you know, he's uh, he's on the circuit, and he knows what's going on. He talks to, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of researchers, like-minded people, right? So uh, the information that he gets is uh, very credible, and uh, you know, and it's worth uh, definitely looking into and uh, investigating, like I did. You know, I uh, you know he put his uh, uh, GPS coordinates down, and uh, he said, "Go check it out for yourself." But uh, if you don't believe me, and uh, you know, and I was like, well, it's "Not that I don't believe you, but you know, just out of curiosity, I want to go and have a look for myself, right?" And uh, you know, so I did. And unfortunately, my Google Earth is not the best, or my computer is not the best, so. You know, what I'll do is uh, I'll, uh, you know, take, uh, uh, I'll copy and paste all the coordinates that he had, and I'll put them down in the description as well. So if you guys want to go and have a look, uh, you know, power to you. And uh, really beyond that, uh, Clarence, uh, thanks. And uh, on Wednesday, I've got a... Uh, Nina Roberts coming on. Uh, she just uh, wrote a book called uh, It's Not All Love and Light, uh, which I agree because uh, a lot of these people, they uh, claim to be uh, spiritual and, uh, you know, new agers, yeah. right? And uh, meanwhile, they're busy attacking people and uh, putting them down and, uh, you know, trying to uh, get them shadow banned or banned or blocked and reporting their posts and such, right? So, uh, you know, he uh, points out a lot of that in her book, which was uh, published by uh, Sasmic Books. And uh, if Sasmic Books uh, sounds familiar to you guys, that's because uh, our good buddy, uh, Michael Feely, that's uh, his uh, publishing company. Um, so, uh, you know, he is uh, behind that book, which is uh, great to see. So I will have uh, Nina Roberts on uh, Wednesday at uh, 12 o'clock. So uh, that should be a, uh, an interesting conversation because, you know, we're always talking about love and light, love and light, right? But we never really discuss the other side of that spectrum to where, you know, people are being assholes and, uh, you know, just not, you right. know, walking the walk, right? They're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. So, uh, you know, we'll get to hear from her. So if you guys want to join me on Wednesday at noon, uh, that'd be fantastic. And uh, please like this video. And, uh, you know, thanks for all your comments, because uh, when you like and comment, uh, you know, it, uh, uh, it lifts the video in the uh, algorithms and uh, it comes uh, as uh, recommended videos. And uh, also it helps uh, defeat the thought police, because uh, we know how, uh, you know, the thought police likes to, uh, you know, constantly be on us, right? Especially when we're talking about things like this. Right. Which are uh, you know, a little bit off the old uh, beaten track, right? So uh, they'll try to censor and all that shit. So uh, it's best to uh, defeat the hot police. And with that being said, um, you know, thanks a lot, and Clarence. You got any uh, final words? No, not really. Just be safe out there. Wash your hands. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't hoard. Yeah, don't hoard, please. Uh, yeah. You know, go to your neighbors, uh, you know, see if there's any elderly around and, uh, you know, yeah. offer to, uh, you know, give them a hand if they, uh, you know, need uh, somebody to make a store run for them. Uh, we know it's quite dangerous for them. So, uh, you know, if we can make a, you know, store run for them, then, uh, you know, fantastic. But, uh, you know, check in on uh, the elderly around your neighborhood. Make sure that uh, they're doing okay because, uh, you know, that's just our uh, human responsibility. 
And, uh, you know, don't let this uh, really get to your head. Like we were saying earlier, you know, this seems to be a false flag manufactured event. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it'll you know, last a couple of weeks, if not just a couple of few months, and it'll be over. And hopefully, you know, all this, uh, you know, reset talk that's out there, hopefully it comes to be. And uh, the central banks are gone and Hillary Clinton's in jail. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they'll... Uh, you know, then they'll be a, a new world <laughs> back onto the gold standard. Thank God. So uh, hopefully the nightmare is over. So hang tight, be kind, and uh, be nice to everybody. And uh, much love to you guys. Uh, thanks for your support. And uh, share this video. And uh, until next time, uh, you know, be safe. And uh, my name's Omar. And uh, I was the host with uh, Watchers Talk coming at you guys from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia with my co-host, Clarence Mitchell from Closer Encounters, coming at you from uh, somewhere in Minnesota. That's so right. uh, talk to you guys later and uh, take it easy.